Thank you, Mike. And one more thing that's uh, want to highlight in your bulletin, that's next steps. For those of you who are new around Harbor, been here a couple weeks, even a couple months, and you haven't been a part of next steps, this is a great opportunity. Five-week experience that meets during second service. You might have to wake up a little early, come to first service, and then you can be a part of next steps. But it's a place where you can build connections with other Harbor folks, where you can meet leaders, pastors, elders at Harbor. They lead each one of the sessions. And then the last session I lead, we meet after church. And uh, at that session, you can ask me any question you want about Harbor Church. I always get a bunch of really interesting questions when we have that time. Like after last week's sermon, I'm sure I'll get some questions about gender and the Bible. I'm sure that's coming. But one question that I always get every single time is this. Why does Harbor Church do communion every week? Why communion every single week? Because some of you might be coming from churches where you did communion once a month or maybe once a quarter. And so to you, every week, it seems kind of excessive. And then for some of you who aren't coming from any kind of church background, doing this thing called communion every week, it seems a little culty to you. You're just like, this is a little weird. So why do we do communion every single week at this church? Well, I'm going to let my buddy Paul explain it for me. So if you got your Bible, open to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11. We've been working through this book for a few months now, and one of the things that we've been hearing about over and over in this book is divisions in the church. There are all kinds of divisions in the Corinthian church, like between conservatives and charismatics, between mystics and intellectuals, between single people and married people between feminists and chauvinists, like we heard about last week. This week, we're going to hear about one more of those divisions, but here's the thing. Paul is going to give us a huge tool that we can use to overcome those divisions. He's going to talk about the gift of communion and how it helps us overcome our divisions with each other through this tangible reminder that we get every week of how Jesus overcame our division with God. So let's pray. Then we'll dive right in to what Paul has to say. Father, thank you so much for the gift of your son, Jesus. We would be nothing. We would be nowhere without Jesus. Thank you for his perfect life. Thank you for his brutal death. Thank you for his glorious resurrection. Thank you for his loving reign. And Lord, I pray that as a result of our time in your word, that communion would help us remember and appreciate and be overwhelmed by the goodness of Jesus in our lives. Help us to see Jesus and meet Jesus in a powerful new way today. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is gonna start out doing what we've heard him doing over and over in this letter. He's gonna totally roast the Corinthians. Let's start it out. 1 Corinthians 11, we're gonna start in verse 17. 1 Corinthians 11, 17, Paul says, now in giving instruction, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. In other words, it's just not good for you to come together like this. When you come together and you do church on Sundays, you're doing more harm than you're doing good. We've heard Paul confront all kinds of things in the Corinthian church so far, but this is the only one where he says, hey, it would be better for you guys to stay home than to do what you're doing. What is it that they're doing? Verse 18, to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. Indeed, it's necessary that there be factions among you so that those who are approved may be recognized 
among you. And I love that. Paul is so realistic. He knows that there's always going to be divisions among Christians because Christians are sinners. There's never going to be a point where all Christians just come together and sing kumbaya together. It's never going to happen because Christians are fallen and foolish. We're sinful and stupid. And here's another one of these sinful divisions in the Corinthian church. Verse 20. When you come together then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. And so one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Okay, so here's what's going on here. Here's one more division in the church. There's the division between the rich people and the working class or poor people. There's a bunch of people in the church who are rich. And Corinth was a, a very entrepreneurial town. So there were some, some entrepreneurial folks. Maybe they did an internet startup, then they sold it to Google for $10 million. Now they're just living large, just cruising every day, maybe playing the stock market all day, but they're, they're, they're just cruising through life. That's half the church. Then the other half of the church is working class. They're working a blue-collar job all day, and then maybe they're driving for DoorDash at night just to make ends meet because Corinth was expensive, just like Hawaii is. Here's what's happening on Sundays. On Sundays, all the rich people are rolling in mid-morning and having this epic brunch together because church happens to meet at one of the mansions of one of their rich friends. That's where the Corinthian church met. It's an epic brunch with bottomless mimosas. That's the kind of brunch this is. Just epic, boozy meal every single Sunday. Then, after all the rich people are all bust up, then the working class people finally are able to roll in after work. There's no food left in the buffet, and so the working class people, they just get a few soggy straps. There's no room left in the main dining hall, and so all the working class people, they got to sit out in the hallway. Then they start the church service with the Lord's Supper. Here's what the Lord's Supper is for them. All the rich people in the dining hall, they tear off a hunk of bread on their plate. They lift their glass of wine, probably their fifth glass of wine, and they raise a toast to Jesus. All right, Jesus, we like that guy. All the working class people out in the hall who are starving because they didn't even have time to eat after work before they came to church, all they've got is a little soggy scrap of bread that they pass around and, and a little cup of wine that they share. So you can understand why Paul is losing his flipping mind over this. This is just unacceptable. The church is completely divided. The poor people are hungry and the rich people are sloshed. This can't stand. That's why he says in verse 22, don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I, I don't praise you in this matter. Can you, can you just feel the heat in his voice? What, what should I say to you? Any of you parents ever say something like that to your kids? I don't even know what to say to you right now. I'm just speechless right now. I don't even know where to start with you right now. That's Paul right here. I don't know where to start, so I guess I'll just start with the gospel. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, 
He also took the cup after supper, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Such an amazing explanation of the significance of communion. But here's the bummer. The bummer is that none of our English translations give you the full idea of what Paul's saying here. Look at verse 23 again. What he's literally saying is, I received from the Lord what I also handed over to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was handed over, took bread. Same words there. So every week when we take communion, God is handing over a reminder to us of how Jesus was handed over for us. Handed over for our sin. And he wasn't just handed over by Judas wasn't just handed over by the chief priests, by the Roman governor. Jesus was handed over by God himself. The father willingly handed over his one and only son. In Acts 2.23, it says Jesus was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. Jesus was delivered up for us so that we could be delivered up from our sin. That's what we're remembering every week through communion. That's what we're proclaiming every week through communion. What did Paul say in verse 26? As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. So family, that's why we celebrate communion every week. That's why it happens. First of all, because communion is instructional. We're teaching here. We are proclaiming the Lord's death when we eat the bread and drink the cup. And we're proclaiming it to each other. To each other. Family, you are preaching a sermon every single week just by taking communion. You're preaching a sermon with built-in visual aids, the bread and the cup. Like a few weeks ago when my good buddy Ryan came and preached for us, he used visual aids. He held up cabbage and kimchi, and he said, God wants to transform you just like cabbage is transformed into kimchi. During the middle of his sermon, one of my kids who will remain nameless sends me a text, Dad, I wouldn't fall asleep in your sermons if you used visual aids like Uncle Ryan. Well, here you go, all right? Here's my visual aid. This is the visual aid we get every single week. On the night that Jesus was died, uh, night before Jesus died, he's having dinner with his disciples, and bread is always a part of that dinner. He holds up the bread and he says, this is my body, which is broken for you for the forgiveness of sins. This is a tangible reminder, a tangible symbol every week of how Christ's body was broken for us. Now, some of you might have grown up in church traditions where you learned that in communion, the bread and the wine physically become the body and blood of Jesus, but that's just not the most natural way to understand what Jesus was saying here. If I held up my phone with a picture of my dog and I said, this is my dog, the most natural way for you to understand that wouldn't be to think that my phone is going to mystically become my dog. It's just, we know this is a symbol. This is a representation. And we get the honor of having a tangible, physical representation of the body and blood in our hands every week, broken and shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins. 
Communion is a sermon that preaches mind-blowing truths in really tangible ways. Communion is a sermon about our sin. And so you don't need to be perfect to take communion. You need to be imperfect. You need to be trusting Christ to pay for your imperfection and, and to transform your imperfection. There's an old teaching tool that Christians use called the, called the Heidelberg Catechism. It asks the question, who should come to the Lord's table? And the answer is, those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and the death of Christ. I love that. Communion, it's a sermon about our sin, but at the same time, it's a sermon about our Savior. About his death on the cross and resurrection from the grave is all that we need to take care of all of our sin and weakness. There's some Christians who feel like they need to do a little more than what Jesus did. Do a little more to make God happy, but family, if that is you, I'm sorry to say, but you're spitting in Jesus' face. You're saying, Jesus, yeah, that was nice what you did on the cross, but, but it's not enough. I need to do a little more. I need to check a few boxes that you left unchecked. No, communion reminds us every week that the work was finished by Jesus. It reminds us every week that we are desperately dependent on Jesus for everything. And that's another reason why we take communion. Number two, because it's personal. It's personal. Jesus said in verse 25, do this in remembrance of me. Of me. Not in remembrance of a precept. Not in remembrance of a principle. In remembrance of a person named Jesus. When you physically ingest the bread, it's reminding you that you've spiritually ingested Jesus. And you need to ingest more of him every day. Because, yeah, you need food, you need drink for life. But you need Jesus to have eternal life, to have life to the full that starts right now. And that's why communion, it, it can't be just a dry ritual. It can't be. It's drawing you deeper into a relationship with Jesus every time you celebrate communion. Remembering what Jesus did and who Jesus is. What Jesus did, that's historical fact. When we take communion every week, it reminds us that our faith isn't some mystical, spiritual thing. We're not channeling dreams. We're not channeling energy. We're not looking inside of ourselves to find the real me. We're looking back in history to remember what Jesus did for me. We're remembering what Jesus did and then also who he is. Love how John Piper said it. Look at what he said. Jesus lived. He had a body and a heart that pumped blood and skin that bled. He died publicly on a Roman cross in the place of sinners so that anyone who believes on him might be rescued from the wrath of God. That happened once and for all in history. Every time we take communion, remember the historical fact of what Jesus did and then remember who Jesus is even today. Look at what Lyle Rawlings said. He had no servants, but they called him master. He had no degree, but they called him teacher. Had no medicine, but they called him healer. He had no army, but kings feared him. He won no military battles, but he conquered the world. He committed no crime, but they crucified him. 
He was buried in a tomb, but he lives today. He's not just dead in a grave. He rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, and he's reigning today, and he's coming back one day in the future. And so that's another huge reason why we take communion. Number three, because it's hopeful. It points us forward. In verse 26, Paul said, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we hear that phrase, a lot of times when we take communion, we focus on the first part and forget the last part. We remember his death. We, remember, we forget that he rose and he's coming back. Until he comes. Jesus is coming back to put an end to everything that's wrong in the world. We're not stuck in this endless cycle of sin and forgiveness, sin and forgiveness. One day Jesus is coming back to put an end to our sin once and for all. One day Jesus is coming back to put an end to our suffering once and for all. Some of you are suffering right now. Some of you are suffering in sickness right now. Well, when you take communion, that's a reminder that one day you're going to be healed. Malachi 4 says the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Some of you are suffering injustice right now. When you take communion today, it's a reminder to you that one day you're going to be vindicated. Revelation 11 says the time will come for the dead to be judged and to give the reward to your servants. Some of you are suffering loneliness right now. Well, when you take communion, that's a reminder to you that one day you're going to be embraced. Revelation 21, he will wipe every tear from your eye. Communion is this reminder every week of these mind-blowing truths and this hope that we have. That's why it's so mind-blowingly significant when we take communion. And that's why Paul says in verse 27, so then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. So now we're talking about how we take communion. And how is, well, first, we got to remember that communion is serious. Paul says you can't eat the bread or drink the cup in an unworthy manner. So when people hear that, a lot of people ask, well, what does it mean to be unworthy? Am I unworthy? I mean, I sinned this week, and kind of a lot. Does that make me unworthy to take communion? Well, let me clear something up for you. Yes, you are completely unworthy to take communion. You're totally unworthy for your creator to die for you. You're completely unworthy for his blood to be shed for you. You're totally unworthy for his favor to rest on you. You're completely unworthy for his Holy Spirit to live inside of you. You're completely unworthy to receive communion. That's why you need communion. That's why you need it. You're always unworthy to receive it, but Paul says you can be worthy or unworthy in how you approach it. Paul says you can do it in an unworthy manner. Okay, so what does that mean to receive communion in an unworthy manner? Well, first of all, I would say an unworthy manner would mean approaching communion arrogantly. 
Don't approach communion arrogantly, like when you refuse to acknowledge that you are unworthy. When you refuse to see Jesus as your only hope. When you don't realize how dependent you are on Jesus for his mercy, when you don't see that your only hope is his body and blood, don't approach communion arrogantly. There's somebody who came up to me after first service holding his cup, and he said, I've never taken communion before, and I think if I was going to do that, it would be in an unworthy manner because I've never realized my need for Jesus before today. Could you help me out with that? I'm like, well, I, I'm a pastor. That's kind of my job. I'd be happy to help you out with that. He received Jesus for the first time between services, and we took communion together. That could be you. Don't take communion arrogantly. Don't take communion casually. When you just view it as one more thing that you do at church. Yeah, we sing, and then we listen to some guy talk for a while, and then we get this weird prepackaged cracker and juice, and, and then, we, then we go home. No, this is sacred. You're receiving the body and blood of Jesus. You are desperately depending on the body and blood of Jesus. So don't take it if you don't. Don't take it if there's some area of your life that you refuse to submit to Jesus. Don't come to church and say, thank you, Jesus, for going to the cross while you are happily pursuing something that sent him to the cross. I mean, yeah, we all sin. But... If you're not even trying to fight your sin, then don't come take communion and expect God to bless you in your sin. Don't approach communion casually. And then don't approach communion selfishly. Don't come and take communion when you've got hatred in your heart, when you've got unforgiveness in your heart, when you've got contempt towards those people, whatever those people are defined as to you. Paul says in verse 28, you've got to examine yourself. Think about how you're approaching communion. Because if it's not in a worthy manner, that can lead to divine discipline. Look at verse 29. Paul says, whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. If you take communion without recognizing the body, without recognizing the physical body of Jesus that was broken for your sin, without recognizing the spiritual body of Jesus, his family that's gathered around you, then God might bring discipline. If you approach communion arrogantly or casually or selfishly, God disciplines. This is why many are sick and ill among you. Many have fallen asleep. And I know how barbaric that sounds to us. Does God really make people sick if they approach in an unworthy manner? Does he make people fall asleep? And we know that he's talking in mafia language here, right? Sleep with the fishes is what he's really talking about here. 
Is that really what God does? Well, we, we've got at least four examples in the early church of times when God did exactly that. When he disciplined people for being blatant hypocrites at church. Like Ananias and Sapphira. They gave an offering in church and lied about how much that offering was. So does that mean if I put a $100 bill in the offering box and I wad it up so it looks like a wad of $100 bills, does that mean God is going to strike me dead? Probably not. Probably not. But it does remind us that God disciplines his kids. And there's a reason for that. Look at verse 32. When we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. Family, God disciplines us so he can save us. So that he can draw us closer to himself. And he still does that today. He still does that. Uh, Don Carson, who's the founder of the Gospel Coalition, multinational organization of churches, he preached here at Harbor a while ago. And he told the story of a pastor that he knows, pastor of a church of a couple hundred people. And when this pastor started at the church, the church was just full of sin, just blatant, terrible sin, even among the elders in the church. It was just awful. This pastor didn't know what to do. So he just started praying. He just started praying that God would change the church. You know what happened? The next year, this pastor did 34 funerals. That's what happened. And then the year after that, he did 200 baptisms. The way we approach God affects the people around us. And God cares about that a lot. And so verse 33, verse 33, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. Have you noticed how much Paul talks about coming together as a church five times just in this chapter? Coming together, that's such a crucial part of being a church. Remember three years ago when we couldn't come together? Remember how awful that was? We had to do church at home with our families, sing worship songs with our families. Most of us were wishing that at least one member of our families wasn't singing as we were singing together. You remember that? Remember doing communion at home? Oh, man, some of you forgot to get the bread and the wine or the juice before church service, and so you had to use, like, Cool Ranch Doritos and Fierce Grape Gatorade. It was awful. It was terrible. Praise God that we can come together and be the family of God again. I'm so happy about that. And that's something we got to remember during communion. How we take communion is that we remember that communion is communal. It's not just about me and Jesus. It's about me and my church family and Jesus. Yeah, Paul said there must be divisions among us. There's always going to be divisions among us. Today there's divisions between the Packers fans and the Lions fans. There's always going to be divisions. We have divisions in how we think, how we look, how we act. We have divisions in the secondary theological issues that we have opinions on. There's always going to be divisions among us. If there's no divisions in a church, there's probably no diversity in a church. Everybody looks the same and thinks the same and acts the same. Divisions, family, they're actually a sign of life. It's a sign of the messiness of doing real life together. There's always going to be divisions. But communion is this gift from God that allows us to push through our divisions 
and push towards the unity that Christ purchased for us on the cross. So when we take communion in a few minutes, remember all that. When we take communion in a few minutes, I want you to look a few different directions. When we take communion, look up towards the love of Jesus showered down on you. Look back in history at the sacrifice of Jesus. Look forward at the return of Jesus. Look inside at your need for Jesus. And then look around you. Look at your family in Jesus. And I'm serious about that. When we take communion today, look around. Smile at somebody. Can we do that? I think we can do that. Remember that we are a family together. This isn't just about you and Jesus. This is about you and your church family and Jesus. So let's pray and thank Jesus together. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you so much for everything that we have in you because of everything that you did for us. Thank you for your perfect life to give us your righteousness. Thank you for your brutal death to take away our sin. Thank you for your glorious resurrection to give us new life. And thank you for your loving reign to give us power, guidance through your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the family that you've given us. Thank you for the tangible reminder that we have every week through the bread and the cup and through the faces around us, the body of Christ all around us to remind us of all that we have in you, King Jesus. Help us to remember that. Help us to celebrate that today. It's in your name we pray. Amen.